So this psalm is uh, it's written by David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so that's uh, one of the... David had many low points in his life. This is one of the uh, most severe, but, you know, he had a life of, of incredible ups and incredible downs. And, you know, some of you in the room can relate. And that was certainly his life. And the beautiful thing about the Scripture is that it gives us uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. It doesn't try to paint a picture uh, that's unrealistic or something that we can't relate to, but yet we, in the Psalms especially, can find such comfort for our lives because we can literally just uh, be met by God in the trenches that we're in in everyday, regular life. So... Psalm 63, I'm going to read the whole psalm, and then we'll go through it, okay? So David begins, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you. While I live, I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied with the marrow and the fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips when I remember. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. This is a... It's an amazing passage of Scripture. It's, a very, it's, it's been a very transformative passage of Scripture in my life. When you think about the Bible, you think about uh, whether it be Moses and the burning bush or Jacob and the wrestler or Elijah on Mount Carmel or Mary and the angel or Matthew or Jesus and the tax collector or what. You know, the Bible is just this long litany of uh, ordinary people who encounter God and then the extraordinary supernatural ramifications of those encounters. And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, well, based on what we know about the Bible and what happens when God intersects with ordinary people, then why did I come to church tonight? What was I expecting in coming to church tonight? What? You know, because here's the crazy thing is that we can read the Bible, but then we can somehow get into this cycle where we come to church and we're just going to hear a talk, right? And what are we doing? Or we're going to come to church because that's what we do on Wednesday nights or whatever the case may be. But, you know, if, we're, if, if our head is in the, the, the place the Scripture wants it to be, then we would be thinking differently 
I'm not saying that none of you are thinking this way, but I'm, I, I would wish that we would all did. That we all came in here tonight realizing that there's an opportunity for us to encounter the God of the burning bush or the wrestler or the Damascus road or the, right? Is that impossible? No. And here's the thing. We have his words. So it's not, I'm not, I'm not standing up here telling you a story about a God who meets people, ordinary people, and then supernaturally transforms their life. We're gathered together, and we literally have his transformative word, right? Because this is what renews our mind. This is what transforms us from the inside out. We have it right here. So it's not like God told me something, and I'm just relaying this thing to you, but we have this powerful word, and we're we're having a discussion about it together. And so the potential, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. So a psalm, for lack of a better way to put it, would be a living description of what it's like to experience God. That's what the psalms are. Because, you know, when you, when you, when you listen to music, what you're listening to, whether you have ever thought about this or not, it doesn't even matter what you listen to. If you listen to music, what you're listening to is someone else's experience of some sort. That's what you're listening to. They're telling you a story or they're telling you about something. They're, re they're relaying an experience to you. That's what music is. That's what the Psalms are. They're, they're the relaying of people's Real life experiences. And so, I, I don't know. I wonder, you know, when was the last time you personally encountered God? When was that? This psalm can help you to do that by asking four questions. The first one is this. Do I know God? Do I know Him? What's, what was so helpful for me to, to spend a few days meditating on this psalm is how much it will, um, how much it helped me understand Hosea chapter 13. It was like an amazing, you know, process of God using, I wasn't studying Psalm 63 to understand Hosea chapter 13 I didn't even think there was any connection to it but in the process I realized that I got all this revelation of Hosea 13 through the process of just looking at this psalm do I know God so my my primary purpose is not to know about God but I want to know God I want to know him and it's you know whenever you you know, we try really hard to not, um, you know, if, if you hear me or Pastor Matt or Pastor Brian, if you hear us uh, making a reference to, okay, this word in the Greek or this word in the Hebrew, we try to never do that. 
Because it's annoying, to be quite honest. I, I get annoyed by people because they do it because, not because they need to, but because it makes them feel better about themselves. So if we do it, it is because it's important. I don't ever do that unless I have to. If I can get around it, then I don't do it. Because, you know, I don't ever want you to feel like you need to know that in order to understand the Bible because that's completely false. Completely false. But it is helpful to understand that um, there are words in the English that just are, don't, aren't, are insufficient. And there are a lot of words, especially in Greek, some in Hebrew, but it seems like more in Greek, that we just don't have an English equivalent. And so things get lost in the transition. You know, and so the, the obvious one is love, is that, you know, we just have one word, love. But the, there's multiple kinds of love in the Greek language, and we just translate it L-O-V-E, and so it can be challenging. Well, the other one is, in, in both Hebrew and Greek, K-N-O-W. We just have one word, to know. But, and so if we, the only way in English to, to quantify know is we, ha, we have to put some quantifier on it. We have to say to, to really know or to deeply know, or we have to put another word with it to make it have meaning but and so a lot of times we don't realize that when the when the scripture's talking about no it's the same word in hebrew as adam knew his wife eve and she bore a son that's a we don't use k-n-o-w in that way do we no we don't and so when the Bible's talking about knowing God, that's the kind of intimate relationship that the Bible's talking about. Now, the first question would be just, hey, let's just answer right off the bat. Well, how do we know if we know God? That would be helpful to start because I don't want you to get to the end of the message. I'd rather you figure that out up front or at least get some ideas in your head so you can start to sort it out. How do you know if you know God? Well, when you know God, you have a spiritual appetite. Now, if you have a spiritual appetite, we'll get into the specifics of it, but let's just suffice it to say, if there's no spiritual appetite, then we know for sure you don't know God, okay? Now, spiritual appetite could be a little bit deceiving, so we're going to have to get more specific, but let's suffice it to say, that's step one. Do I have a spiritual appetite? So notice what David says. He says, oh God, in the first three verses, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Now, it's interesting to me that David doesn't say, um, oh, far off God who's a stranger. Oh, God who might be out there somewhere or who's, you know, far different than me that I'm somehow seeking or I'm after. Listen, this is so important for you to understand that the Bible does not teach that finding God is a result of seeking Him. This is a huge misnomer in the modern church. That is not what the Bible teaches. It is not. The Bible teaches 
that those who seek after God are who have already found him. You don't seek after God unless you found him. That's how that works. Now, you seek after what you think, who you think God is. See, we have, we have, we, we, we could say, well, you know, people are, you know, they're spiritually seeking. Well, yeah, they're spiritually seeking something. But once you have found God, then you seek God. See, all people have a general spiritual hunger. All people by nature are religious. That's why every culture that's ever, ever been in every corner of the world, whether it's the most isolated people in the world, have some form of worship because it is innate to being human. So everyone does. You know, in Acts 17, when Paul's there in Athens, he stands in the, the midst of the Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all your things you're very religious. So as I was passing through, considering the objects of your worship, and he goes on to talk about, you know, their, their various gods and the unknown God because they're just trying to generalize everything. So people in general, everyone wants a God. Everyone wants a God of some sort. That's why, there's, that's why the biggest challenge is always idolatry, which is us manufacturing a God. So you can manufacture some way you can make something your God or you can transform your idea of God into something that's going to, whatever it is, that's going to affirm your desires or your flesh or whatever you want. And, but because of sin, you have to understand, no one wants the real God. So you might think that you were spiritually seeking for God, but you weren't seeking for the God of the Bible because the Bible says nobody does that. Ever, never, ever, until you've been found by him. That's how that works. So see, David says, oh God, you are my God. So he's right from the first thing out of his mouth. We know some things about David's relationship with God. Because you don't use my in a relationship unless it is a specific relationship. In other words, my wife, my daughter, my son, those are very specific, deep, intimate relationships. But apart from that, you don't use my. And, but, but David says, my God, not a God, not the God, not what he says, it's my God. It's a very specific descriptive, and it denotes the intimate level of the relationship that David has with God, which is telling us that David has been found by God. Because of everything he says, he's clearly spiritually hungry. So he doesn't first say, I will seek you. That's not what he says. He doesn't, he, it's because you are my God that I will seek you. That's what he says. You understand? See how that worked? We think it's the other way around, but it's not. See, sheep don't go looking for a shepherd. That's not how that happens. We were all lost sheep, weren't we? Isn't that what the Bible says we were? And what happens? It's the shepherd that finds and protects the sheep. 
Sheep never go looking for a shepherd. Sheep never think to their self. Now, this is what sheep do. They go, hey, I think it would be good over there. Hey, I think there's something good to eat over there. Hey, I think I'm hungry. Hey, I think I'm tired. Hey, I think this. Hey, I think that way would be good. They have lots of ideas. But the idea that never crosses the mind of a sheep is, hey, I should go find a shepherd. Net, you see? And that's us. So we have all these ideas that we might attribute to spiritual seeking, and they might fit into the category of spiritually seeking, but we're not seeking the shepherd. We're seeking what we want. That's what we're seeking. So, for example, in the book of Genesis from the very beginning, you don't find Adam and Eve walking through the garden calling out for God, do you? No, you don't. Look, in Genesis 3, the Lord called out to Adam and said to him, where are you? In John chapter 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus says in Luke 19 to Zacchaeus, what does he say? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save. He didn't say the Son of Man's come to reveal himself so that all the seekers could find him. He didn't say I made myself available. He came to see. If he doesn't seek, there is no one getting saved you got to understand the, the posture of this relationship or you're going to be stuck. you got to understand how this works. Romans 3, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Nobody, ever, zero, none, nada. So the way that you know that you've met the real God well, how is that? How do you know if you've met the real God? Is it by going to church? Is it by hearing sermons? Is it by reading your Bible? Is it by me? What is it? All of those things can aid you in it. All of those things could be part of the process, but none of those things can validate it. Validation comes if, you're, if you have a hunger and a thirst for Him. Because the only thing that can create a genuine hunger and thirst for the God of the Bible is you encountering the God of the Bible. Because you can't initiate that on your own. I just, I just want you to consider how profound what we're talking about is. And I'm afraid it's going to slip over some people's heads. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know. That, that you've spent time, and some of you languish, sitting there with your Bibles open, languishing because you, you are long, you're trying to experience God, and, and, it's, and you are, you're, you're trying to pursue Him, and you feel like you're chasing Him, and He's running from you. That's not how this works. That's wrong. So if that's what you're feeling, you are in error. There's another problem because that's not how this works. God is not running from you. So if you're not finding him, I mean, look, there could be a multitude of, of, of answers to this dilemma. You might, be, you, might not, you might be searching for the wrong him. You might have never experienced him. You see, you might think 
that you've experienced something, and so you're searching for that in the Scripture, and that's why you keep coming up empty. Because that's not what it is. And you haven't ever been open to the fact that, well, what exact, what, you know, am I searching for the right thing? Do I know who I'm, have I met? Do, have I experienced? Do I, what? So the question goes back to, the, don't chase rabbits around in circles. Just back up and say, what am I hungry and thirsty for? Am I hungry and thirsty for what I want? Or do I have a hunger and a thirst for a God who is infinitely beyond me and who always says whatever is right and true about me regardless of how it makes me feel, regardless of whether I like it or not, regardless of in the good, the bad. And, and what, what it is, when you meet somebody who knows God and who experiences God on a regular basis, that's why their life is stable. Because God is stable. And so their circumstances are all over the map, but they tend to just, because God brings stability because he doesn't change. So when God, when God kicks their teeth in, they're not devastated because they're used to that. And when God elevates them to the mountaintop, they don't, you know, flip out and, and you know, start blowing streamers and lighting candles because they're, they, they're used to that because that's how it is with God. He's going to tell you what you need to hear. And it's always going to be true and it's always going to be trustworthy and it's always going to be. And so, but you, the, the desire, we all we're born with an innate desire to manufacture God the way we want him to be. And the only antidote for that is meeting the real God. That's the only antidote. And you're going to feel frustrated with religion until that happens. I mean, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to overgeneralize and put people in, in, in you know, I don't want to put you in corners or things that you shouldn't be in. But I, I, I don't think that people who have experienced God because I don't know this to have ever happened. It's never happened in my life. And I don't know of any of you that it's happened in your life. I don't know people who have experienced God. Who think that the people around them are experiencing God in a way that they're not. I think it's a problem if you feel like everyone else around you is experiencing God in a deeper, more profound way than you are, I, that's something's, something's wrong. And it, 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 it doesn't mean you've never met God, but it at least means there, there should be some conversation with somebody that you spiritually trust who's mature, who can give you some guidance in that, because it's, that's a problem. It's a problem. I, I know that I don't always experience God deeper than everybody else, you know why? Because I, I know that there are people around me who experience the same God that I experience. And so I'm not threatened by that, nor am I puffed up by that, because it's the same God. 
But if you're constantly feeling like you're the one left behind, something's not right. Because you're not left behind. That's not how that works. So here's the principle, or at least the first principle. Is that the sense of his absence is the evidence that he has touched you. That's how you know that there's a void. See, before I experienced God, I didn't know I wasn't experiencing God because I didn't know what it was to experience God. Does that make sense? Yeah. So people can intellectually know that they're living a life away from God. I mean, church people, they can know. Unchurched people, they can know intellectually that they're living a life away from God. They can read their Bible or hear a sermon and know that they're not doing right. I mean, listen, you can listen to a TED talk and know that you're not doing right and make changes to your life. And there's absolutely nothing spiritual about that at all. So just realizing that you're not doing right, well, I mean, don't chalk that up to I've experienced God. And sometimes they'll make changes, modify behavior. It'll only be for a time, but that's why you, you never just jump because there's been some momentary, instantaneous change. I mean, everybody in here knows. When you were a kid, you did it. You have kids. Your kids do it. You got in trouble for something. You know what you did? You modified your behavior to stay out of trouble. But nothing changed inside of you. And your kids do the same thing to you. Yeah. And so that doesn't mean anything. But they will not hunger for closeness to God unless he's touched them. Because if you have not, if you've not experienced God, if you haven't met God, if he's not, if, if, and here's the thing, it's not like, wow, I hope someday that we can achieve the level of experiencing God that David did. No. David didn't experience God any deeper than I have. And then many of you have. Because it's the same God. And that's how he interacts with everybody. You're meeting the same person. See, he, he, his sufficiency is so overwhelming that, it doesn't, that our deficiency is irrelevant. See, a person who has, a, has a, a, a genius IQ who experiences God doesn't experience him in a deeper way than a person who has a, 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 a below sufficiency IQ. Because God's sufficiency supersedes any, any, any perceived deficiency in us. So just because someone's in the Bible, or just because someone has a position, or just because someone's done this, or just because someone's done that, it doesn't matter. None of that changes the experience of God. Every person who's experiences God experiences the same God. Whether you went to seminary, whether you're in the Bible, whether you do this, whether you do that, it's the same 
It's the same. It's not, there, it's not second rate. You didn't have a second rate experience with God. That's impossible. There's no, that's, that's never happened and can never happen in all of eternity. It can't. You either know him or you don't. And that's just all there is to it. So the second question is, first one's do I know God? The second one was, as I, am I satisfied in God? See, because, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm just helping us. David's going to help us understand, do we know God? Because if you meet the God of the Bible, guess what? You think you're going to meet the God of the Bible and then be like, hmm, I don't know, it was kind of lacking. That's not how that works. So look at verse 2. So I looked for you in the sanctuary. Now remember, he's in the wilderness. So he can't get to the sanctuary. So he knows where he's seen him before to see his power and his glory. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you. While I live, I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. So in the beginning of our spiritual journey, we may come to God because we are seeking peace. Yeah. We may come to God because we're lonely. I mean, I could give you a thousand reasons. I'm just giving you a couple just to get you, get you to start thinking about this. Or maybe your, your life's falling apart, so you're seeking God. So somebody shows up here because their life's falling apart, and they're seeking God. But understand something. They're, they don't know who they're seeking till they meet him. You see what I'm saying? Like no one, there's no such thing as the story of your life was falling apart. And you, we say it this way, but it's not biblical. We came to church because we were seeking after God. No, no. Remember what we've already proven beyond a shadow of a doubt? Nobody seeks after the God of the Bible unless the God of the Bible's already, unless he's found, you found him. He's found you. You found him. He's found you. So the point is, your life's falling apart and you're seeking God, but you don't know who and what that is until you meet him. You can't imagine to think in our natural, especially a natural uh, unconverted mind at that, which could somehow conjure up who God is. There's not even a chance. All you know is the same thing I knew. My way's not working. I need a different way. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know who this God is that I'm, I'm uh, you know, searching for, but I know what's not, what doesn't work. But when I find him, I go, oh, wow. I didn't know. I, I had no idea that was who this is. So maybe your life's falling apart and... We want him to grant us what we can't seem to attain. See, when, when we 
quote-unquote are seeking God, we've been pursuing something. We've been trying to find peace. We've been trying to find some reconciliation. We've been trying to find something. Whatever it is, and we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. And that's part of the things that the sovereign God uses in our life to bring us to himself is we fail at everything until except for him, right? So what he'll do is he'll, he'll let us get to the realization that the God of our imagination or understanding or whatever we want to call it, you know, we all have to get to some point of frustration. Then the moment comes and it's like, wait a second. What in the world just happened? See, this is a sign that we have yet to truly experience God. So it's not a bad thing that we're seeking Him because we need peace or that we're lonely or that our life's falling apart or whatever it is that we can't attain. But it's a sign that we haven't truly experienced Him. Because if we did, think about it. Once you experience God, are you trying to attain those things? No, because you now, you have, you have, you have taken a drink from the bottomless well of whatever it is you are searching for. There's no, there's no more, you know, I mean, there's no more me trying to attain something. I mean, man, I just, I just dove off into, it's like I'm trying to find a, a, drop of water to quench my thirst and I fell into the Pacific Ocean. And I, so you think I'm swimming around the Pacific Ocean going, where am I going to find some water? You know, no. I realize the analogy breaks down unless it was the oceans made of fresh water that I could drink, but you get the point. So Jonathan Edwards, this is one of my favorite quotes about this, put it this way, the mark of authentic spiritual experience is that you become satisfied with God for who he is and not just for the benefits he can give. And the reason for that is I say that all the time, but the reason for that is, is because the fact that you're, you're, you're fixated on what God can give you is evidence you've never met him. Because if you met him, you would not be doing that. Because he's so much more than that. You would realize how insanely ridiculous that is. It just, it's just ridiculous. It just doesn't make any sense at all. So the principle now would be when you become satisfied in God, well, things change. They change. See, the minute a person becomes satisfied in God... Their life radically changes. Satisfaction in God revolutionizes your life. Think of all the things, all the, all the petty things, all the, all the endeavors of the flesh that just disappear. Now, they still try to crop up. They still try to weasel their way in. But the point is, is that at any moment that your satisfaction is in God, you have laser, you literally have laser focus. Because what, what's distracting you? 
Whenever you get distracted, it's always, always. What's always at the root of it? What, remember last week when we talked about how there's only three points to Satan's sermon? And all three of those points relate to it. They're, they're trying to create some discontentment, some feeling of, you know, you're not getting what you deserve or you're not getting all that you could get or whatever. And because it's dissatisfaction. Every, the only message that, that the enemy has to play on you is dissatisfaction. Because if you're satisfied, then you're invincible. And so when we find ourselves in a situations where we're not spiritually where we ought to be or who we ought to be, we got a satisfaction problem. That's what we got. Now, here's how I know that. Because when David says what he says in these opening verses, you have to understand he has real problems. Now, I'm not saying that nobody in this room has real problems because there are you, they're real problems in this room. We're real people. We're living in a real sinful world, and we got real problems. But I'm just telling you that he's in the wilderness, on the run, living as a fugitive, being pursued by armed killers who don't want to harm him, don't want to detain him, don't want to question him. They want to kill him. And the worst part of the whole thing is that the person who is behind all of it is his son, Absalom, his own flesh and blood that he raised, that he loves, is trying to murder him. Do you understand the, the gravity of the weight of his current circumstances when he writes these words. And this is what I'm trying to, to an unspiritual mind, it seems like, well, he's just in denial. There's just no possible way. If you've experienced God, then you know, oh no, there's a way. 100% there's a way. 100%. And as life is as unraveling as you think it could possibly get, he's not seeking help. He doesn't say anything. He's seeking God. You know why? Because he's met him. See, when you meet him, you don't want help. You want him. Because you know what? When... The thing is, is like, my goodness, if I, could bottle, if I could bottle up what happens inside of me when I am in the presence of God, oh my goodness. Do you think I'm thinking about, oh man, what about, I'm worried about that and how about, do you think, do you think when I'm in the presence of God, I'm going, oh God, while I got your attention, do you think you could, I'm not even thinking about all that. I'm just like, oh, what is happening right now? I don't have any problems. I'm in complete amazement of how incredibly awesome he is. And that's what David's not in denial. He's in reality. That's what he's in. 
The last thing you would do in, if you've experienced God in David's situation, you come into the presence of God, would, would ask for, you, you wouldn't ask for a thing. You just, want it, you just want to get as much of that as you can get. You know, I'm sure some of you feel like you're in trouble. And you're, you feel like the enemies of your life are pursuing you right now. And they very well may be. I mean, maybe it's marriage trouble. Maybe it's financial trouble. Maybe it's relational trouble. Maybe you're in a spiritual desert. Maybe you're, you're out in the wilderness. And you feel like your soul is dry. And you find yourself, you know, just spiritually parched. You don't listen to me. If that's where you feel like tonight, just please listen to this one thing. You don't need God to fix your problems. You just need Him. That's all you need is Him. And in your, the flesh of your mind, that makes no sense. It makes no sense. Before I experienced God, that I would think you are insane. But it's true. You don't need him to fix anything. You just need what you need is him. Those other things, because him, his presence in your life, just it doesn't it doesn't fix all the problems. But I promise you, it takes all the sting and all the urgency and all the. It, it, it's almost like it's almost like spiritually you you become spiritually like a superhero. That's the only way I know how to explain it. You you become spiritually. Like you're literally, that's where David is. Anybody would look at him and go, man, like I am glad I'm not him. Like you would get whoever you think is having the worst possible moment in their life, bring them to, and go show them David, and they'd feel better about themselves. And yet these, are the, these words are what came out of David's mouth. Does this sound like somebody who's? I mean, he's saying, I will praise you as long as I live with lips of joy. You see what I'm saying? It sounds insane. But when you experience God, it makes perfect sense. Number three, do I remember his grace? So do I know God? Well, let's figure that out. Am I satisfied with God? Then the third question would be, well, do I remember his grace? Because if I'm not sat, so I'm just, you see, I'm just deconstructing. If I'm not satisfied with God, well, then what would be the reason behind that? Well, maybe I don't remember his grace. So what I'm saying is, is that you, you could take these questions and work in reverse. That's what you could do. If you, if you said, honestly, in the if I'm being honest in the quietness of my heart right now, I really am not satisfied in God. Okay. Where do I start? Right here. Do I remember his grace? Move to the next one. Ask yourself that question. 
See, he says in verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. And listen, all that is is just the, the that's from Leviticus chapter 3. It's simply talking about the, the choicest parts of the sacrifice that were reserved, uh, you know, that people couldn't eat because they were, they were special. They were reserved for God or they were set aside for uh, his servants or whatever the case may be. And he's, so he's just simply saying, my soul shall be satisfied with the best of the best and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Notice he doesn't say, I'll be satisfied if, if you do this or if you do that. He doesn't say that. He just says, that's what I'm saying. It's just a blanket. I'll be satisfied. I'll be satisfied. If nothing changes, I'm satisfied with you, God. If it gets worse, I'm satisfied with you, God. I'm satisfied with you. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have, you have been my help. See, he's remembering. He's remembering. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. He's remembering where he's been. He's remembering that his current circumstances, where he currently is right now, doesn't change what he has experienced in God. See that? Even when my son's trying to kill me. It's the craziest thing. See, when, when life is hard, but I would say when it's, when it's excruciatingly hard, you got to remember that God is sovereign and your circumstances are not. See, whatever else is going on in your life, that's the only thing you can think of. This is just a great exercise for you. Whatever it is that is just, you can't seem to get past. You can't seem to get over. You can't seem to find, you know, whatever your big hurdle is or big problem is or whatever. Can I, this is just a great step one. I want you to understand something. Whatever that is, that thing is not sovereign. Whatever it is, it's not sovereign. It's not, it's not all-knowing. It's not all-powerful. But you're relating to it as if it is. I'm not saying it's not horrific. I'm not saying that it's not something that's going to uh, take years. I'm not saying that it's something that will be with you the rest of your life and it will never go away. See, that's one thing. I'll never lie to you. I don't ever tell you. All of you that have lost people in your family and that I've, I've done funerals for you and all, all of you, I tell all of you the truth. I don't lie to you. I don't tell you, don't worry, time heals all wounds. That is a lie. That's not true. I, I tell you, you know what? You might miss your loved one every day of your life for the rest of your life if you live 100 years. That's the truth. But don't fret because that pain is not sovereign. It's not sovereign. You know what? If you, if you have some chronic illness, I don't tell you, well, I know God's going to take it away. That's not true. He might or he might not. I don't know that. I tell you the truth. It, you might hurt the rest of your life. It might get worse. But it's not sovereign. But I know who is sovereign. 
See, other things have an amazing ability to camouflage and masquerade themselves in our lives as sovereign. And we think we, think we just can't, I just, I can't get over this. I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, because you're, you're relating to it as if it's all-powerful. It is not all-powerful. But God is. See, people will say, again, I say it all the time. I tell people who are grieving and hurting all the time. I tell them every time. I've told you this. you got to make a choice every day what you're going to focus on. Now, you can focus on what you have lost, which is what your flesh wants you to do. Your flesh wants you to think every day of what you've lost, doesn't it? Yes. I don't just mean physical loss. I mean whatever you feel like you've lost. Your flesh wants you to focus on what you've lost every day. And I say to you, you have to make a choice every day. Are you going to focus on what you've lost or are you going to focus on what you had? But guess what? I can't say that to everyone because it doesn't matter if it's not true. It's only good if it's, you can't focus on what you had if what you had is not good. What I'm saying is, is that the, there is no power in positive thinking unless the positive thinking is based in truth. That's the only way it's any good. See, Oprah had half the truth going. Positive thinking is great if it's based on truth. But if it's based on a lie, it's a complete waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. So see, focusing on the positive is only helpful if it's true. So if you... If you lost something in your life that was amazing, are you with me? It, it could be somebody or it could be something. If you lost something in your life that was amazing, and it really was amazing, then guess what? Bingo. You, you have to make a choice every day. Am I going to focus on what I lost or am I going to focus on what I had? Because what you had was amazing. Now, if what you had wasn't amazing, then focusing on it and pretending like it was is not going to help you one bit. You know why? Because your soul knows it's not true. It's not true. The key is, what is the truth? That's the key. Not what do you want the truth to be, but what is the truth? So do you remember His grace? See, that's what I'm saying. Do you remember? What your circumstance that seems sovereign, whatever that is, whatever that, whatever that hurdle is, whatever that thing is, the way to deflate that mirage of sovereignty in that circumstance is to, the way you poke holes in it and all the air leaks out of it is by you use the pins or the needles of grace. And you, you remember all the ways that God has shown you grace in spite of this thing that you're treating as sovereign. And every time you think of ways that God's shown you grace, you pop a hole in it, pop a hole in it, pop a hole in it. And the air starts going out of it. It starts deflating. It exposes that it's just a scam. Because the grace of God is a reminder to you, wait a minute, that thing's not sovereign. Only a sovereign God could have been graceful to me in these ways. 
Only God. Only. So do I remember His grace? And then number four. Do I trust His justice? See, because if, if, I'm not, if I'm not sure if I know God, you follow me? If I'm not sure, so then I ask the question, well, am I satisfied in God? And I go, well, no, I'm really not satisfied. So then the, so I back up to the next step, which is, do I remember his grace? Now, you're sitting here, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't see grace in my situation. I mean, is the, man, is the Bible awesome or what? Look at how perfect this is. So what is the next thing, Dave? So what do you do if you go, I'm, I'm not finding any grace to pop holes in this? See, I don't see the grace in it. What's your problem? You got a justice problem. Because if you don't see grace in your past, the only way you cannot see grace is you're blinded by injustice. The minute you say, well, no, what happened to me wasn't fair, you just, you wiped, it, you wiped all the grace off. Where, there's no grace. You got a justice problem. So what you have to do is you can't force yourself to remember grace that you don't see. Can you do that? You cannot do that. So what do you got to do? You got to address your justice problem. So that's what you do. You go back. Look at what he says. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it. Now watch what he says. He's talking about his son. His own son. Shall go into the lower parts of the earth. We all know what that is. He's talking about his son. He says, they're going to fall by the sword. They're going to be eaten by jackals. Now, what does he mean by that? See, he's not saying they're not going to get me. He's not saying that they're going to win uh, or they're going to lose or they won't win. Or they. He's saying that they have, there's zero chance they can succeed. Because they're fighting against God. And this is what he means. He doesn't mean in this life. They may kill him. But if they kill him, who wins? God wins. In other words, it doesn't matter who does what to who, when, where, what. It's still the same answer. God always wins. Who's going to win? No matter what happens. No matter who does what. It doesn't matter the specifics. There's only one winner, 100% of the time, for all of eternity. One, and it's always God. And why? Because of what he's telling us right here. He's driving you to wrestle with this issue of justice. So this is the first thing that you've got to deal with in your heart. If, you, if you're struggling here, you've you got to understand something. Lots of things, lots of things in this life are unjust. Everywhere you turn, there's injustice. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be treated. I mean, there are very few things. There are very few things that you can do in this life 
that are more ridiculous, absurd, and moronic than getting mad because you've been treated unjustly. I literally just want to, my head wants to explode. Because when you come to me with your big, long, drawn-out, you know, because you've thought it through, man. You've done it. You've had the trial in your mind. You're, you've sat on the jury. You've, you've analyzed all the, the information, and you've come to the verdict, and you're just coming to talk to somebody because you want affirmation that you're right about what you're saying, and I listen to the whole junk. And you know what I'm thinking? Maybe I should start saying this. I never have. I'm too afraid. I'm thinking, what did you expect to happen? What world do you think you live in? Are you a human on this earth? Do you live in the same realm that I live in? Like, in what universe would you think that you're going to get treated justly all the time like are you you're the one who needs therapy right but but what how, how do we get there we've all been there we've all been there what what is going on what i mean so why does why does the bible say why does God record these words? Why does the Holy Spirit lead David to say, these, my son, is probably the reason why he doesn't call him by name. It's too painful. See, he's just like the ones that are pursuing me. It's too painful to say, but he knows the truth. They're going to the lowest parts of that. They're going to hell. That's what he's saying. They're going to die by the sword. That means they're going to die. They're going to face judgment they're going to face the second death. He's, he's being theologically accurate in what's going to happen. Why does he go there? What, is, what does hell have to do with any of this? Oh, it has everything to do with it. Everything. This may be the most profound thing I've said all night. For some of you, it's going to be the, this is going to be the thing that's going to go bing in your head. And it's going to, you're going to get set free from this one simple thing. And then you're going to be able to go... Answer four, answer three, answer two, experience God. And the reason why you've been struggling is because of this right here. It's because our belief in a real and literal hell is what allows us to be merciful and gracious. See, when you're, when you're telling me this whole big thing about how unjust it was and it was like I'm with you I'm like you know I'm like oh yeah that's bad oh man that's terrible mm, that is so bad what do you think about hell let's talk about hell for a minute you're like wait what yeah that's what we should do that's what's going to help you in this moment you need to have a conversation about hell See, people think that when you, when you believe in a real literal hell, that it makes you harsh or critical or judgmental or mean-spirited or I don't even, I mean, that is the opposite 
Now, some people may be harsh and mean and critical, and they may be calling whatever they're talking about hell, but they've never experienced God. Because when you, when you know God and you believe what God says about hell, it transforms, it transforms your understanding of justice. That's what it does. That's exactly what it does. See, and so this is what I want you to see, is that for so many people, this barricade, and isn't it interesting that this is where we would end up, like in the most unlikely, nobody would ever guess this. You couldn't make this up. Like God is so supremely wise. He, he, he just knows how to, to read us. Like, like I'm reading this psalm. I feel like God is like decoding my DNA. It's what it feels like. It's what you should feel like right now. That's what he's doing to you. He knows every molecule about you. And he's telling you something that if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's just not right. You're oblivious to who you are and what, what's going on. You're oblivious. This issue of a literal biblical hell, if there is no eternal justice from a sovereign God, then the only sensible thing to do is to seek out our justice here and now. You see, so it, would ma it only makes sense for you to be enraged at the injustice. Now listen, there, what I'm talking about has nothing to do with being enraged about injustice perpetrated on other people. You understand that? That's a whole nother conversation. Like you should be enraged about that and you should be active you should immediately activate to stop it you understand that i'm talking about i'm only talking about you taking it personal you got that this is about you this isn't about any situation around you okay because it would be the opposite of biblical to look around and see injustice and then turn a blind eye and go well it's a it's a bad world and pastor tony said the world's full of injustice oh no 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 that's ignoring the Spirit of God. I'm talking about you personally with all your, you know, your undealt with issues revolving this. Well, the reason why you're bent on justice, the reason why you've talked this thing over 47,000 times in your head, you've got it all locked down. I mean, you are like the greatest attorney in the history of the world when you start laying out your situation like you got that sucker locked down don't you you didn't even have to go to law school it just came natural and any judge with any sense is going to agree with me the problem is is that you don't believe you don't believe in eternal justice now you can lie all you want to your actions prove you don't believe it because if you did, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. See, the reason why you're so bent is because you don't really believe that God's going to straighten everything out. That's why. Or think about how bizarre this is. It could be worse than that. You believe 
And what I'm going to say is so borderline blasphemous, but it's true. You believe that you could actually execute justice better than God. Like that somehow your wrath against the person who has perpetrated this evil against you is going to be more effective than Almighty God. What, what has just happened? What, what, how twisted do we have to get to get to that point? And here's what's crazy, is that in this moment right now, where what I'm saying is 100% logical and theological and sensible, There's been a thousand moments in your life where this makes no sense at all. Or maybe right now. There's something that's, that you're holding on to, harboring, and, it's, and you can't get, you don't, you, you got a hell problem. That's what you got. You got a hell problem. This is what we do. We have conversations with each other and we say, you know what you need to do? You need to forgive them. Yes, that's right. But you know what? Every time you've ever said to somebody, because I've said it 10,000 times, you need to forgive them. The truth is, if they could, they already would have. Isn't that right? The reason you haven't forgiven is because you can't. And trying to forgive is not going to make you forgive. You have a hell problem. That's what you have a justice problem. That's the problem. I mean, let the shackles get broken off you right now. It's a hell problem. Fix your mind on the biblical doctrine of hell and the justice of God, and you'll be set free from the prison that you live in. That's the solution. Trying harder to forgive is not going to get you where you need to go. Because if you could, you would. That's like telling a depressed person to cheer up. That's like telling a diabetic to, why don't you just make some insulin? It's the same thing. You have a hell problem. See, Jesus says, look, how does Jesus come along in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and say, but I say to you, oh, here's what I'm saying. I'm just going to sling this on out there on you. Why don't you... Go out there and love your enemies. Why don't you bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you? Now, I'm just saying, how is that possible? That is not possible. What are you going to do? If I tell you, you know what you need to do? You need to obey Matthew 5, You have zero chance of gritting it out and doing that. You can't make yourself do that. But if you understand the biblical doctrine of hell, if you understand the justice of God, you'll gladly, willfully do that. Why wouldn't you? Because you'll realize, I'm, I'm completely unimportant in this equation. You just, once you get your little truth serum in you and you realize, oh, here all this time, I let my flesh convince me that 
I'm the sheriff that's come to enforce the law. Oh, no. The one who made the law. The one who every violation of the law is a personal attack against him. He's the one who's going to enforce it. You think he needs your help? You think he needs your advice? You think he needs your... It's, and listen, not only, not only will you be, you, will you be set free from the prison of you being the one who tries to execute justice. Oh, it's better than that. Your heart then overflows. Because the minute you understand the biblical doctrine of hell, the first evidence of that is you become flowing with mercy. Because when you get a glimpse of what the justice of God is all about, you don't have the capacity to hate anyone bad enough to want them to see that or feel that or taste that or experience that. You become the most merciful person. See, please understand that all bitterness and unforgiveness... They're evidence of unbelief. I can tell you all day long what the Bible says about bitterness and unforgiveness. You already know what the damage that's caused by a root of bitterness that you let grow in your heart. I can warn you about all that. I can tell you about, I can read you uh, the parable of an unforgiving servant and you can you can try to wrestle with the end of that parable and try to convince yourself that that's just metaphoric, which is not. Every time I say this, every time I say this, every time. I've said it probably 30 times in 25 years, and every time. I get an email or a note or a conversation. And I'm going to say it again. There is no such thing as an unforgiving person in heaven. Period. None. They're not there. Because people who can't forgive hate when I say that. It's the truth. You can't be forgiven and not forgive. You can't. So if you can't forgive, it's because you haven't been forgiven. That's where it all starts. That's step one right there. It's unbelief, period. You don't believe in real hell. You don't believe in real justice. You don't believe in a sovereign God. So here's the takeaway. The takeaway is that the gospel is for rebels and thieves.
It's for the unworthy. It's for those who are prone, predestined to, made to wander. The gospel's made for the the missing sheep. And it's made for the most unlikely. That's who it's for. So don't you see where this is going? Because you realize what I just said. There's no unforgiving, there's no unforgiving people in heaven. And you, you, you trying to argue with me and say, I'm saved and I'm having trouble with this forgiveness problem. And I'm saying, I don't think you, I don't think you got grace needles poking into this sovereign situation. Because I don't think you think the gospel's for rebels and thieves. I don't think you understand it's for the unworthy. I don't think it's, you understand it's for the people who are prone to wonder. I don't think... See, the only way to get there is you think that the gospel is for people that are pretty good. The only way you can get there is whoever's done you wrong, you're better than them. That's the only way you can get there. you got to put yourself on some pedestal. And you cannot abide in the gospel on a pedestal. It is impossible. It's impossible. It is impossible. That's not who Jesus came for. Everybody in hell is there because they thought they were not that bad. That's why they're there. And everybody in heaven, the biggest realization in heaven, the most glorious, amazing moment in heaven was the minute they opened their eyes and realized how incredibly worse they were than they even thought and how incredibly awesome and great God is beyond what they even thought. That's what it is. So just rest assured, there's nothing keeping you from knowing God except for you. God's not running from you. There's nothing keeping you from being satisfied in Him except for you. He wants that for everybody, for everybody. You can't read the Bible and come up with some different conclusion. Nothing's keeping you from remembering His grace except for you. Think about this. The reason some people can't see grace in their past is not because it's not there. It's because they're blind. There's no such thing as somebody that doesn't have grace in their past, is there? God shows grace to the just and the unjust. That every person who's ever breathed this earth, breathed air on this earth, has experienced the grace of God. What, but do they acknowledge it? Do they remember it? Do they? It's everyone. It's not just saved people. Everyone. Everyone has can. Can look. Isn't that what Romans chapter 1 and 2 say? And nothing is keeping us from trusting in his justice except for 
me and you. If I can't, if I can't get over something, if I can't, if I can't deflate the sovereignty of my situation, it's not a God problem, it's a me problem. It's a me problem. And so I'm not telling you about some amazing great person named David who had some unique and unbelievable experience with God. I'm telling you about an ordinary guy named David who had the same experience you can have with the most extraordinary God you could ever imagine. And you can have that. You can have it today. You can have it tonight. You can have it. You can have it. He wants that for you. That's what he wants. And you say, I don't think he wants that for you. He slaughtered his son so that you would be able to come to him. You don't think he wants that? If there's a wanting problem, it is not on his side. It's that we want a different God. We want our God instead of the God. So let's experience him for who he is and be satisfied in him and let the, the circumstances come as they may. None of the, now the Bible makes sense, huh, doesn't it? We could talk all night about all the things the Bible says that would make sense. That's why God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. It's not because there's not scary things out there. Oh, no, they're scary. But if you know him, if you've experienced him, then why would you be afraid of him? You see? You see? You can love your enemies. You can bless those who curse you and persecute you. Not because you're weak or oblivious. No, the opposite. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Your word is so powerful and wonderful. God, thank you for each one here tonight. What a gift.